Amen. So the context of every story is sometimes the most important key to understanding uh, what the account is telling you. So uh, for many of you who who are strange to um, my neck of the woods down in the state of Florida, um, it might be strange for me to come to you and say, you know, down if you go into the marshes down around Savannah where the fiddler crabs are, you'll be able to throw some of them out into the water, drop a line, and catch some reds. And, yeah, many of you will look at me a little bit like, yeah, kind of get it, kind of don't get it, don't really know what a fiddler crab is, right? I don't exactly know what you mean by reds. Uh, but what I'm talking about is a miniature little crab that has a big arm that looks like a fiddle, and you hook them up and you throw them into the intercoastal or the salt marshes, and redfish, red bass, red drum, whatever you want to call them, will come and grab them. And if I were to tell you that I caught a 13-pounder, uh, you know, red, how would you know that that was different from the other kind of drum that lives down there or a sheephead? Yeah, there's an actual fish called a sheephead that we catch down there in the state of Florida. they got little teeth. They look like sheep in their face. They're black and white striped. Ugliest thing you've ever seen, but they're good to eat. But the context of the story, the historical setting of the story, is important to understand so that you can understand what's being said. It's important that you understand and I understand that as John writes this account of Jesus saying that I am the gate and I am the good shepherd, that the Middle East is about 90% desert. And it's barren. Except for the edges of water and the places where cities are, the rest of the place is a fairly barren place. It's a hard living. It's filled with crooks and crannies and caves and canyons and sand and fleas and wolves and, and things that bite and tigers and bears, oh my. There's all sorts of stuff that happens out in the deserts of the Middle East. And this is yet where these shepherds live and dwell You have to understand, too, in the context of this scripture, shepherds weren't always the greatest people in the world in their day and time in the Middle East. They normally were considered to be antisocial. There wasn't a whole lot of water around for them to keep themselves, well, keep up their personal hygiene. Sometimes they might have a little bit of odor about them. You might also note that shepherds were more fond of sheep than they actually were of people. And you would find maybe their personalities were a bit gruff and rough. You would also find that many of them are tough individuals, rugged individuals. Individuals that didn't have time for foolishness because they were too busy protecting their flocks from robbers and thieves and things that would eat them. I recall when I first went to New York City for the very first time, you may not get this, but I felt like I was in a desert You say, well, that's weird. There were people all around you where there's all sorts of activity. There was plenty of water to drink. There was all sorts of stuff going on. But I tell you, inside of me, in my little ADD brain, there was so much information overload happening at one time with neon lights and people and things flashing in streets and cars honking and people cussing and people yelling and all sorts of stuff going on that I went into overload and thought, God, I'm in the desert. And there's so much noise, I couldn't hear one person talking if, they want, if I wanted to hear them. And you get desperate to hear a voice. All of us are in deserts. It may be the desert of our own mind. 
It may be the desert of slipping health. It may be the desert of addiction. It may be the desert, as Melissa was talking earlier, of poor self-talk. It may be the desert of horrible circumstances. And it's in that desert that we need to hear, where do I go and who will speak to me? That's what this 10th chapter is. It's somewhere around the time of what we celebrate today is Hanukkah. It was the Festival of Lights. It's coming on the tail end of where we were last week in the Festival of Booths. And Jesus uses this festival as a connection to the ninth chapter where he heals this blind man to point out to the Pharisees that they were blind leaders, that they were blind shepherds, that they had entered into the people of God by corrupt means and they were corrupting the people of God with religious laws that God never intended for them to have as a burden. To instruct them in a lifestyle that was a lifestyle of slavery and religious rigor that God never intended for His people to have. And in doing so, they were actually leading people further away from the intimacy with God than they were drawing people in. And this is where Jesus comes in the very first chapter and says, I tell you, I'm the gate. I'm the door. Now, in that culture, out in the desert, there weren't many, like, split-rail fences or anything. Most of it was, like, stone canyons and caves. And at night, as night would come, all of the different flocks, and this is another misconception that we have, possibly, is that these shepherds were ranchers. They, they were not ranchers, Many of them, the vast majority of them, only had 10 to 20 to 25 sheep. And so at night, all these different little pods of sheep would collect together to get into maybe one or two canyons that were available, and that would be the the fenced area that they would call. And the shepherds, or these shepherds, would come and stand at the gateway entrance, the entrance to that canyon, and there he would stand guard. And no one or nothing could come by unless it went through him. And that's what Jesus is saying here in this 10th chapter in the first verse, that he's that gateway. That there is nobody in the flock of God that comes except through him. That he is the only possible means of entry into the house of God, into the family of God. It's the one thing that our culture is deluding about Jesus. Jesus is all-inclusive but mutually exclusive to his own people. What do I mean by that? That Jesus is not a respecter of any tribe or race or tongue or group of people. That he loves every single kind of human being there is. He is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of all mankind. But His salvation is only effective to those who come to Him for it. He is the gate. No one comes into the family of God without recognition that Jesus is the gatekeeper. It wasn't the Pharisees. It's not the religious people. It's not even the collective group of a corporate church. It's Jesus himself who says that you belong. 
More than you belong to a church, more than you belong to a family, more than you belong to an organization, more than you belong to a mission, more than you belong to a parachurch, more than you belong to anything that you can list, you belong to Jesus. And so Jesus writes and tells his story, the Holy Spirit writes and tells his story. Three things I want you to see about it this morning, at least, are the exclusive nature of the Savior. He is the guardian of his sheep in verses 1 through 10. This world is a desert. I don't know if you've recognized that yet or not. But there are all sorts and types of violences Threats, discouragements, thirst, brokenness, and there are all sorts of voices that speak into this desert trying to tell you they know the way. As you and I walk through this desert, isn't it good to know that there's someone who stands at the gate of your life and of my life who says, I will protect you. I will watch over you in the night of life. I will watch over you in the darkness of your mind. I will watch over you in the darkness of your addictions. I will watch over you in your brokenness. I will watch over you in those who threaten you. I will watch over you in your circumstances. I will watch over you in your work. I will watch over you in your relationships. I will watch over you in every area of your life. I stand at the gate of your life if you're mine. And I will protect you only as a shepherd can. Jesus goes on to say that his sheep know his voice. They won't follow a stranger, but he speaks to them. In verse 6, he says, I'm sorry, in verse 4, he says, When he had brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow them. Notice that Jesus is before them and not pushing them. Notice that Jesus leads And he leads by example. He leads and takes the danger and the hits first. He's not lording over his flock as though he's an angry man. He's not pushing his flock from behind. We recall the 23rd Psalm, don't we? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Why? Because he leadeth me. Where? To green pastures, to still waters. You see, the point of Jesus saying this in the presence of the Pharisees was to tell them, you have led my people away from green pastures. You have led my people away from still waters. You have led them into the desert where there is no food, and you have led them into rushing waters where life is chaotic and full of fear. Jesus says, I, the good shepherd, will lead them into my flock and I will lead my flock out into pastures because my flock knows my voice. Notice that Jesus is leading you 
He's not pushing you. He's not smacking you. He's not angry at you. But He's leading you. And where is He leading you? To a place of abundance. So in verse 6, though, it says that Jesus used this figure of speech. It's a different word than a parable. It's actually a word that kind of means a mystery. But a mystery that already has an answer. It says, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So he says this to them again. Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. Sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. And anyone who enters by me, look at this, they will be saved. They will go in and they will go out and they will find pasture. You see what Jesus is saying? That in him and through him you have freedom. You go in, you go out, you're protected. You're not under bondage any longer. But you're in provision. You're in safety. Oh, the world outside the pen may be going crazy. You may hear the noises of it barking over the fence, coming down the canyon walls. You may hear the wolf scream in the middle of the night. But the reality is this, that there is no bite from any creature that can ever harm you. You say, well, Pastor, life is really hard and and things are really tough. And my heart hurts and my heart aches. And I get that. And I've been in the dark myself. And I'm sure that I'll see dark things again. But it's in that darkness that the light shines even brighter that Jesus calls out and says, This darkness, this time, this place, this injury will not rule you. It will not have power over you. I will define who you are and you are free. And ultimately, you will be in the pasture with me that will be lush and green and full beyond your greatest imagination. Why? Because in verse 10 he says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. It's sort of a double word here that Jesus is using. Jesus is saying, if you come through me, if I am your gate, if I am your protector, understand this. You remember last week we talked about the Greek word zoe for life, that it meant life full, that it meant the essence of all that life was meant to be. Jesus does a kind of a double life thing here. He says, not only are you going to have life, zoe, this full, meaningful, great meaningful, wonderful, joyful, peaceful life that makes sense, but you're going to have a lot of it. Even in the midst of cancer? Yes. Even in the midst of MS? Yes. Even in the midst of poverty? Yes. Why? Because this pastor is not your home. And you are on your way home to a different pasture that is full and lush and green that the Savior has already prepared for you to receive. 
And so that you face these things, these diseases, these circumstances, these darkness. You face this desert. You face the cruelty of people. You face the overlording of earthly bosses with a joy in your heart that realizes this ain't it. Sorry for the bad grammar, English teachers. There is so much more for me than... than cancer could ever do to me. There's so much better for me in the light of cancer. So much better for me in the light of poverty. So much better for me in the light of death. So much better for me in the light of broken relationships. So much better for me. There's so much in Jesus that awaits me that I can walk through this desert with my shepherd who leads me to this place. How do I know this? How do I know this? Because Jesus puts a qualifier on his shepherding. He says, I am the good shepherd. You remember the encounter with the rich young ruler, don't you? When he came to Jesus and he said what to him? Good teacher. Remember the question Jesus asked? Why do you call me good? Only God alone is good. It wasn't a doubt in Jesus' heart of his own identity. It was an affirmation of a sarcastic answer to one who says, Only God is good. You're talking to him. It is God himself who shepherds you and I. I want you to look, too, at the relationship and the nature of us, the sheep. In verse 2, John says this, or Jesus says this, He who enters the gate is not the shepherd of sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. He calls his sheep by name and leads them. Isn't it good to know that Jesus knows you? That he knows you by name. The nature of being a sheep, or is it sheep eye? The nature of being a sheep, I was at ADD kicking in, is you're dependent. You know, sheep, I don't mean to insult us, but they're not the brightest bulbs in the box you know back in I think it was 1982 something like that there was a horrible storm and it was a freak storm in Syria and it snowed three feet of snow and there was a flock of sheep and the report goes like this they died the whole flock the goats didn't die the other animals didn't die it was just the sheep you know why They don't know how to find their own food. Unless a shepherd leads them to where food is, unless the shepherd tells them what to do, unless the shepherd shows them where to go, a sheep will stand there and starve to death. They don't run far. They don't run fast. They mostly just roll over. A wolf comes in. They scatter about 10 feet, then they roll over, fall down, and wait to be food. Isn't it somewhat like us? 
adversity comes? Do we look to the shepherd? Or do we look to see what the other sheep are doing? Do we run about ten feet and fall over and say, God, that's enough, I can't take anymore? Or do we trust in our circumstances that the shepherd is leading and that our dependency is on him? It's a good question for you and I to ask in our own hearts this morning. Who do I radically depend upon? Is my radical dependency upon myself or do I depend upon my shepherd? If my dependency is on myself, I will hear voices that are deceiving and they will lead me into a place of death. The only way that I can have Zoe and have Zoe more abundantly is that if I listen to the voice of my shepherd because I'm dependent upon him. I was designed for abundance. You were designed for abundance. Have you ever wondered why you want so much and you can never be filled? Have you ever wondered why you desire more and more and more and yet cannot find the depths of your desire? It is because you and I were meant to be only fulfilled and satisfied to the place where the shepherd is leading unto abundant life. And apart from him, life is incomplete. Apart from him, there is no sustenance. Apart from him, there is no security. Apart from him, there is no destiny. It's the nature of being a woolly, four-footed idiot. I need a shepherd, and I need a shepherd that will give me life. And praise the Lord that He sent Himself to say and proclaim this very promise that I am the Good Shepherd, and if you will hear my voice and follow me, you will have life abundant. Then the nature of the pasture. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd again. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd Genosko is the word for no, is the Greek word for no. It's a very intimate way of expressing knowledge. And the Septuagint, which was a Greek version of the Old Testament, is the word that's used when Adam knew his wife. It is the highest level of knowledge that you and I can understand as human beings. It's the highest level of of intimacy that you and I can understand as human beings. Jesus says, I know you in that way. I know you and all your vulnerabilities. I know you without your fig leaves. I know you without everything that shackles you. I know your heart. I know your desire. I know you. You know why he knows you and I so well? Because he made you. 
And the one who made you is and wants you to understand how intimate he is with you in his pasture. How dull we sheep sometimes are when we sit on the Lord's day and don't realize that the living God is present in these pews with you and I right now. Not in some faraway theological concept, but in a real spiritual reality. He says, I'm here with you wherever two or more of you are. I'm there with you. Be assured, people of God, Jesus is with you now. How can we just sit and not fall on our knees at the glory of the second person of the Trinity and realize He says and proclaims, I fulfilled it. I'm the good shepherd I bring you life. And yet we are so still. We're so afraid. We're so overwhelmed. Hear those voices? What will people think? What will life be like if I really radically commit my life to following this shepherd? It's at the end of this chapter that because of the division of the Jews and the religious people that Jesus will leave Jerusalem. He'll leave Judea at this point and go. He won't come back again until he's crucified. Jesus is with you now. And he's with us now. He's not here with a message of anger. He's not here with a message of work. But he's here with a message, in many cases, of repentance. And we have such a wrong idea of what repentance is. He's here with a message of repentance that says, Quit being your own shepherd and trust me. Quit listening to the other voices and listen to mine who knows you. Live like you were designed to live in His presence. And then notice too the unity of the flock. They're together. Verse 16, he says, Jesus says, I have other sheep here he's talking about he's talking to a Jewish audience about a Gentile audience of believers to come. He's looking forward into the day where the church will be made up of Semitic believers and Gentile believers. Where the gospel will spread across the earth and the curse of Babel will be redeemed and the whole earth will be one under Christ. There will no longer be Jew or Gentile or Greek or Scythian, but all will be one in Jesus, and he will be Lord over all. He says, for this reason, in verse 17, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. What Jesus is saying here is understand this. Jesus didn't die for you. He didn't die for me to appease God somehow, to get him 
convinced that somehow he should receive you and me. The Father loved you so much that he sent Jesus for this accomplishment. The accomplishment of reversing the curse of Eden. That the day will come where the pasture will be perfect and new again. That the covenant that Christ made with God the Father will be realized forever and ever with God and His people. And you and I will dwell forever together as one with one spirit, one baptism, and one Lord. It is the destiny of every believing Christian. It is the destiny of the church. How can I know the voice of Christ? How can I hear Jesus this morning? I want to give you four general keys very quickly of what I, what I put a grid through to know if what I'm reading, what I'm hearing is of God. The first one is this. It's biblical. I can't tell you how many times people come to me and say to me something like, God told me or God showed me or God did this or God did that. The first grid that goes through when I hear that, it may be my own thoughts even saying, well, God, do you want me to do this? God, do you want me to do that? The first grid that goes through is, is this biblical? Is there biblical precedence? Is there a biblical truth? Is there a biblical reason? Has God unveiled it in His Word and does what's going through my mind or out of a person's mouth or out of my mouth, is it congruent with the Word of God? If it's not, it's not from God. If it's not, it's not from God. Why do I say that? Because the final word of God is Jesus. If it doesn't match with what Jesus is taught, if it doesn't match with what the Old Testament is taught, if it doesn't match with Jesus' fulfillment and lifts him on high, then it's not of God. The second qualifier is this. Does it elevate Jesus? Does it show me my dependency upon Jesus more? Does it lift him higher in my life? Does it glorify Him? Is it about Him? Will it unveil my redemption and my repentance and my sanctification in Him even more? The third is this. Does it lead me to faith? Does the voice, does the message, does it lead me to have faith? The writer of Hebrews says this. It is impossible to please God without what? Faith. I know for sure that the Word of God tells me that Jesus will have me in circumstances where I must do what? Apply faith. Why would He have me do that? Because it pleases Him to see you and I trust Him. Even when the wolves howl. The fourth thing is this. Does this message, does this word, does whatever coming, does it bring healing? Does it bring unity? Or does it bring disharmony? If you're about to say something that you think is from God, you should put it through these four things. Is what I'm about to say biblical? Does it elevate Christ? 
Does it lead to faith? And does it bring healing and unity? Why do I say that? Because Jesus just said the enemy comes to do what? Steal, kill, destroy. Then I know I'm, I know Jesus must then come to bring life, abundance, peace, joy, kindness, gentleness, self-control, faithfulness. If I see those fruit, then I can know for sure the message is from Jesus. And if it's from Him, then I can rest. We all know the voice. We just have to listen. Listening doesn't come in burst of anger. Listening doesn't is not accomplished intention. It takes time to process truth. It takes quiet to make a sentence. That's why God would say in Isaiah, He's a still small voice. What happens when you hear a still, small voice? What do you do? You step in, don't you? If somebody's speaking to you softly, what do you do? You step in. You get closer to them. You move in on them. You get over 60, you start doing this. You get over 70, you start hearing the sound of hearing aids. You get into your 80s and you're doing sign language. But you're moving closer, are you not? So that you can hear and you can understand. It's no different with the still, small voice of God. God calls you to come closer to Him to hear. Why is it small? Because He wants you to listen hard beyond the noise to the truth that He wants to give you. We all know the voice. We're all hardwired for the voice. You remember Helen Keller? Many of you do, don't you? The young woman who was born deaf and blind, mute, couldn't speak hardly. She had a caregiver, Ann Sullivan. You remember, remember that? The beautiful story is, is told. Ann was such a believer. In the moment that Helen was able to learn sign language in her hands and begin to process thoughts and understand, Anne was sure to share the gospel with Helen and the knowledge of who Jesus was. The most amazing thing happened at the end of her telling her the story. Helen spoke up in her muted, deaf tone and says, I knew him. All the time, I just never knew his name. You know him. He knows your name. Know his. The Good Shepherd. Let's pray.